Hey, this, uh, this letter that we have been, this book as we refer to it, is really a letter from the Apostle Paul to a man named Timothy, and we've been exploring that. And uh, it's a personal letter, although we also understand it to be an instruction manual of sorts for the church. So we've been learning from it, we've been examining it, kind of asking questions of how does our ministry align with what we are seeing here as a local church, and uh, it has been good and beneficial. Uh, today, our text is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 16, and what I've done is invited uh, each service, invited one of our elders to stand just where they are, uh, seated in the room today, and read for us that text and pray for us as we engage in the Word of God. So Wes Myers, Wes, saw you sitting over here, so Wes, let's stand, let's uh, go ahead and read that text for us as we track along with you and then pray for us in our time in the Word, would you please? If you put these things before the brothers... You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the word of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the councils of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for this day. And uh, we just ask that you would go before us as we examine your scripture and help us to understand everything you want us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Wes. Well, what comes to mind when you hear the word godliness? What comes to mind when you hear the word godliness? Part of what comes to mind is that godliness is the goal of the Christian life. This is how we often use the word, right? We meet it in relationship to our thinking and our action. We, we might say as well that godliness is the product of effective ministry, that it is produced in you or in us, through effective teaching and learning from the life of others who are following Jesus and devotion to Christ ourselves. In other words, putting into practice what we hear and see, godliness. Now, we looked at the word godliness a few weeks ago when we studied chapter 3, verse 16 in 1 Timothy, and we talked about the definition of it simply simply being that which represents God, godliness, that which is like God. Now, I want, to, I want to explain something here this morning. This is really key for those who follow Jesus. And if you're in the room or tuning in online today and you're not yet a follower of Christ, maybe you're just here, you're examining, like, what does it mean to be a Christian? You have questions, all that kind of stuff, then that's great too. This is good for you to grasp as well. But as a follower of Jesus, I, I want to make clear of something today. And that is this, that the goal of your life is not to grow in good character. 
or teach good character. That's not the goal of your life. The goal of a Christ follower is not to grow in good character or to teach good character. Things like integrity or responsibility or compassion or generosity, things we might understand to be in alignment with good character. That's not our goal. The truth is even those without Christ can pursue good character traits for various reasons. We've all heard, perhaps, and even perhaps you've said yourself, things like, I know people who don't claim to be a Christian who live with better character than some who do claim to be a Christian. And when we observe this or hear this, there's a few things we ought to keep in mind. First of all, we are not saved by our good character. It is not our character that saves us. We do not, we cannot earn our salvation. God does not ask each of us to reach a certain point of good character and then somehow qualify to become a Christian. In other words, in academic terms perhaps, good character is not a prerequisite for salvation. It's not something that has to be there and be in place before you can become saved. The Bible teaches us very clearly that we are saved by God's grace through faith, right? It is a gift of God. It is something freely offered to us as we receive it. We receive it by acknowledging and confessing our sin before God. We receive it by believing in the atoning work of Jesus upon the cross, the life-giving truth of his resurrection, We receive salvation when we repent, the Bible says, meaning that we change our thinking. That's what repent means in its most basic form, means to change the way you think about something, to turn. And so in salvation, we change the way we think about Jesus. Before, perhaps, we resisted Jesus or we were just complacent against Jesus, but but now we have received Jesus. We've changed the way we think about him, then that affects the way in which we live. So we acknowledge and confess our sin. We believe in the atoning work of Christ upon the cross and his miraculous resurrection, and we repent. We, we change our life in alignment with that confession and belief. That's how we become saved. So if you're here today and you're wondering, man, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do I uh, become saved in my life? That's how you do that. It's, it's, a, it's a conversation at times with you and God of like, God, I, I believe that I'm a sinner and, and I believe you sent your son to die on the cross for me and that you raised him from the dead. And, and man, I want to live a different life for your glory. So we need to remember we are not saved by our good character. Second of all, we need to remember that our salvation in Jesus Christ does not produce instantaneous good character, right? Our salvation in Jesus doesn't produce this instantaneous good, and it's not that when we are saved, we're brought from death to life, that, that moment when we are born again in new life in Christ Jesus, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden we have this good character that's just instantaneously, instantaneously put upon us. That's why in the scriptures we read, certain aspects of, of process, of putting off, right, and, and putting on, putting off of what is of our old self and putting on of what are, is, is of our new self in Christ Jesus, or this aspect of, of growth and all of it, like the scripture emphasizes that, meaning that when we come to Christ, we are saved, we are redeemed, and, and so on in Christ Jesus, and that begins for us a journey of growing to live like Jesus. That's why we use the word journey often around here, because it's a process of growth. 
Our salvation means that God has made us alive in Christ Jesus, that we are born again into a new life. Meaning this, the penalty of sin is paid for, right? What does the Bible say? The wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death. When we come to Christ in salvation, that penalty is paid for. We are forgiven and justified, declared righteous by God, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus. That penalty is paid for. The power of sin is no longer our master. We are set free from the power of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin, the Bible says. So we're no longer confined to to follow the desires of our sinful hearts. We have been set free to live a different life. And we realize the presence of sin remains. The penalty of sin is paid for. The power of sin no longer is our master. And the presence of sin remains. God doesn't eradicate that from our lives. The Bible speaks of the fact we can let sin win. We can let sin continue to reign in us. But the power is over sin through Christ Jesus. So that's what it means to be saved. That's what salvation means. The penalty is paid for. The power of sin no longer is our master. The presence of sin remains. So... There's a question I want to pose to you today is, how can someone, how can someone without Jesus live with good character? Someone who's still under that penalty of sin, someone who's still, you know, under the power of sin because they have not been redeemed in Christ. How can someone without Jesus live with good character? Well, we said last week, this thing called a conscience that God gives to every single person. They live with a conscience that helps them determine right and wrong. A conscience is that God-given moral compass. Oftentimes, it is informed or developed by certain values that strengthen that moral compass. So someone even without Christ, perhaps in their upbringing, that conscience was reinforced in, in a good way by someone uh, you know, putting the values uh, for that person before them. They grow in those values that are honorable to Christ so they can grow in good character, or at least understand the value of that good character. So here's the truth that I want to kind of pull together for you at this point this morning, is that followers of Jesus and non-followers of Jesus can pursue very similar values or morals in life. We see that. We see that to be true. We observe that at times. And that's why you make the statement at times of like, man, there's some people I know who aren't Christians who live in a better way than some who I know to claim to be Christians. Right? That, that's a truth we must reconcile. So, so the follow-up question is, is this, is that what's, what's the difference? Why, why, how can they? What, what's the difference between the two? Well, the difference between the two is motivation. And the motivation is revealed by an extremely significant three-letter word. Why? Why? Why pursue good character? Why pursue living in such a way? You see, without Christ, there is no clear answer to the question, why? And when an answer is given, it is focused on self-benefit. In all honesty, if not all, many of the reasons for someone without Christ, even someone with Christ, if we're not careful, right, the reasons they give of why to pursue good character is motivated by benefit to self. 
Let me give you a couple of examples. And uh, hang with me in this. This is hopefully will bring some clarification for you if you're not quite grasping what I'm saying. Let's ask the question, why be a generous person? If generosity is considered to be a good character quality, something to pursue, something that, that you know, is, is, is worthy of a pursuit in life, why be a generous person? For someone who doesn't know Christ, they might answer, well, you know, it's important to help the poor or fight hunger or starvation or help in disaster relief or something like that. They might say it's important to help those in need who cannot help themselves. They may start with it's, it's because that's what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to help those that are in need. But if you press them further as to, well, why is that important to help those who are in need? What you, what you boil it down to is this, and this has been my experience at least, most often what they will conclude is that it's good to help someone else because it helps me feel good about myself. When I send that money in to help with disaster relief or when I help someone, you know, around the holidays, uh, you know, have a nice Thanksgiving or whatever, it helps me feel good about myself. In other words, it's, it's a therapeutic, therapeutic act. It's something that, that they say, well, if I do this, it's good to help them because it, in turn, helps me. Let's ask the question, what about integrity? Why be a person of integrity? Why, why be honest? Why choose to do what is right even when no one is looking? For someone without Christ, they might say, well, I've learned my lesson. You know, I've lied before and gotten in trouble, lost my job or whatever, and I don't want to go through that again. Right? Or I've seen somebody else lie, I've seen someone else be dishonest, and man, they, they ended up with some pretty harsh you know, consequences. For, I, don't want, I don't want to go there. So what's the motivation for being a person of integrity, for thinking that integrity is a good thing in life? It's, it's really self-protection. I don't want to be in trouble again, or I don't want to be in trouble like that person was. So therefore, integrity becomes a good thing but it's self-protection. So what's the difference of a Christ follower? Let's go back to the generous question. Why be generous? Instead of a therapeutic answer of, well, it helps me feel good about myself, as a Christ follower, your answer should be something like this. Because my God and Heavenly Father has been and continues to be incredibly generous toward me. His grace is so evident by countless blessings toward me. He modeled sacrificial giving by sending his only son to die for me. And I want to represent him well by the way I live. You see, that's godliness. That's not just good character. That's godliness. That's wanting to live a life in a way that represents or reflects God well. What about integrity? For a believer... One may answer something along this line, because my God and Heavenly Father is the source of all truth. He never contradicts what He says. He never says one thing or, and does another. He never deceives. He only speaks truth. Therefore, in my life, I want to be a godly person. I want to represent God well and be one who lives with integrity. See the difference? My goal for you today is to leave here with an understanding of and desire for godliness, for that which represents God, and for that to be true of your life in an increasing manner. Right? I, I want to be godly. I want to be a godly 
parent. I want to be a godly single person. I want to be a godly grandparent. I want to be a godly employee or employer. For the heartbeat within you to be, I don't don't want to be a good person. I want to be a godly person. You see the difference? That's an important distinction. Now, when we think of godliness, we focused on it a bit a few weeks ago in chapter 3, verse 16, when the Apostle Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. There's that word. The mystery of godliness. And he goes on to describe what he means by that, by six statements that testify to the person of Jesus Christ, that he was God in the flesh. And that is important because that is the confession of our faith, Jesus, right? We talked about most often the the other religions of the world, the, the crux of it all comes down to believing who Jesus is. So Paul testifies of that godliness, that Jesus was that ultimate representation of God. Hebrews chapter 1 speaks of it, of Jesus in this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, there's that phrase, by the way, if you were with us last week. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Listen to this, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, the scripture declares Jesus as God in the flesh. He is the exact imprint or exact representation of God, the perfect example. Now, therefore, when we study the life of Jesus, we know we see a clear representation of God lived out, godliness on display with complete perfection. So as we think about godliness, as we enter into our text today, I want you to have that backdrop in mind of thinking about godliness, thinking of the distinction of what, you know, good character versus pursuit of godliness as we journey into this. Verse 6, if you put these things, Paul says to Timothy, Before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So he simply encourages him to continue to put these things before the brothers, before the church, like like setting the table, if you will, right? Continue to bring it before them so that they may understand and see and follow. Because there have been those who he's already noted have made a shipwreck of their faith and have departed from the faith. So continue to put these things before them. And you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Not a good teacher, a good servant. The word diakonos here is for servant is the word used. We talked about that when we spoke of the role of deacons within the church, those serving, right? And so it's important to know, like what Paul is addressing here is not just Timothy as a teacher, but as a servant. This is the way he is to serve the church by continuing to put these things before them. Being trained. He says, in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. The word trained here um, really is uh, the word nourished. This is a different concept than what we see in verse 7, so it's important to note that. Same word, English word is used here to translate it, trained, but here the intent is more of the word nourished, and so many of your other translations uh, communicate it that way. 
It's a word that speaks of the rearing of children, the bringing up of children, or the feeding of food of a young child. This is one example of how it's used in Acts chapter 7, verse 21, when Pharaoh's daughter found uh, little Moses in that basket in the river, right? It says that she brought him and adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Brought him up. That's this same word here that the English Standard Version has as trained. So as Paul is encouraging Timothy, being trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine, these things that you were brought up on, right? We've noted that elsewhere where uh, Timothy's grandmother and mother were very instrumental in his rearing and, and teaching him the things of God. Later in 2 Timothy, the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, he, he comments on it again in chapter 3. He says, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul notes that Timothy's upbringing, right? Literally, he was nourished in the word of God from the very beginning. But it also communicates to us this imagery of, of growing in our faith, right? From a childlike faith to growing into spiritual maturity, being nourished in the word of God. And so Timothy's ability to be a good servant, to put these things before the brothers, was in fact that he had been nourished by the word of God. So point one to reflect upon today is this, that godliness, representing God, begins with our knowledge of and nourishment from the Word of God. You can't live what you don't know, right? So what's emphasized here is this nourishment, this growing in, this, this, this process of, of, of being raised in the truth, growing in Him. And Timothy is an example of that. So verse 7, Paul says to him, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And that phrase is kind of the crux of the whole message today. Train yourself for godliness. He says to Timothy to avoid or have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Stories of gods, or we know the context that they are in. Uh, Ephesus was a a significant Greco-Roman city, and so the Greek pantheon of gods and so on was very prevalent. The temple of Artemis or Diana was right there within their own city and so on. So he's just saying, don't, don't, don't entertain these irreverent or these godless, silly myths, these stories of the gods, but instead train yourself for godliness. He emphasized it again to Timothy in his second letter. Once again, we see how much of this continued on between the first letter and the second. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Harmonius and Philetus, who have, answer, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So here's a, a, a kind of example of what they struggled with. There were some within the church who were teaching that the resurrection of the saints, which is a teaching of the Scripture, had already happened. Paul's saying this is, this is causing an uproar. It's, 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 it's distracting people. It's, it's derailing people from the truth. Don't pay attention to these things. We also know from Scripture some other examples of these 
myths or things that distracted believers. The church in Thessalonica, when we read the letters of First and Second Thessalonians, that some had stopped working because they believed that Jesus was going to return any moment, right? Which is truth. But what that led them to do was say, well, then why even bother to work? I mean, if he's going to come back, like, why, why put in the effort, you know? Why get up at, in the morning and go to work? Instead, we should just eat, drink, and be merry and wait, right? That was an issue for them because of what some had begun to teach. We know that there were allegorical interpretations of the Old Testament among the Jews, these, these symbolic or figurative meanings that they brought that led them all down all kinds of rabbit trails and things like that that were not of the truth. We know the Gnostic teaching was present, that there was a special knowledge that was necessary. Even the teaching of the Pharisees, right, that Jesus confronted over and over in the Gospels, this teaching of, of legalism, of rules and, 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 and law and so on that, that was not in accordance with God. So Paul's saying to him, don't mess with these things. Pay attention to what is going to produce godliness in your life, in the lives of the church. So how about today? What are some of the unproductive conversations perhaps that kind of tend to consume the church? This has happened repeatedly over time. The one I remember most vividly was back when I was in high school. Those who predict a certain time of the coming of Jesus, right? You've heard this perhaps. The big one when I was in high school was 88 reasons why in 88. Some of you might recall that one. And it caused a lot of conversation within the church. And that whole year was filled with this like, you know, anxiousness of is it going to be, and you know what? It could be any day that Jesus comes back, right? But, but this guy had 88 reasons why it was going to happen in 1988. You know what happened? 1988 came, and 1988 went. And I think he had an addendum the following year, and he said 89 reasons why in 89. So apparently he, he missed one, right? But, I mean, there was a lot of conversation that took place within the church, as I recall. And it was just like, man, those, those are the kind of things. Like, don't get distracted by, like, what, what does this produce within you that is a way of godliness? We have Dan Brown's book called The Da Vinci Code entirely fictional. It has caused many to spend time and have conversations about these things within the church. There's no solid basis of his uh, statements in there historically or theologically or biblically, right? Full of lies about Jesus, yet it, it, it tends to capture the thoughts of believers like, ah, is this true? And don't pay attention to it. Politics in the church. This has been a particular issue in most recent years with our polarized nation that has become increasingly polarized politically, topics of Christian nationalism and so on. Not that we cannot be um, certainly supportive of our country and love our country and all of that, but there's teachings that God has a covenant relationship with the United States and so on. If not careful, we can care more and talk more about how we're going to get the next right candidate in office, then we can care about our neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. Absolutely, we should care about our country, right, and participate in the democratic system with which we operate. I love the fact we have believers in various positions, political offices, and desire more of that. So thankful for those men and women, absolutely. Our activism can flow out of godliness, but we are not, if we're not careful, 
Our activism becomes our God and causes us to focus our hearts and minds on what is not truly in line with godliness. Our faith is to deeply influence our, politi- our politics, but politics is never to become the focus of our faith. So we can become distracted easily with what is described here as irreverent talk or silly myths that the enemy would love to draw us into. Paul says, have nothing to do with these things. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for what represents the character of God. The word rather says to me here that there is a choice. Rather, train yourself for godliness. We said earlier, godliness begins with our knowledge of and nourishment from the word of God. A a second point to draw into today is What I would say is that godliness grows by strenuous intentionality. Train yourself for godliness. You may not like that phrase, strenuous intentionality. Let me unpack it for you. I'm not speaking of a joyless, kind of heavy, burdensome kind of thing here. I'm talking what the scripture speaks to us is that to live the Christian life and to train ourselves for godliness takes intentional pursuit And I would use the word strenuous because the battle is real, right? To train. The Greek word here, gymnazo, which where we get our word gymnasium from. We know that that's an athletic term. It literally means poorly clothed or naked. Paul draws on that imagery uh, uh, of an athlete who strictly disciplines themselves to compete, This discipline includes physically removing clothing that can slow one down or get in the way. The Bible speaks of this effort and this this sense of of intentionality in other places. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained. Everybody say trained. trained. Trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That sounds like intentional effort, doesn't it? Strenuous? Maybe you would use a different word, but my heart today is to help you understand, like, yes, the, the, the joy of following, there is joy in our salvation, but in pursuit of godliness, there is a training. There is an intentionality that ought to be part of every day of our life. Hebrews chapter 12, a little later, In the book, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so also let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, right? Take into account what Jesus did. Think about the example he gave us. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may grow, so that you may not, excuse me, may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Verse 4 of Hebrews 12, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? This is why I use the word strenuous. Because I think at times we can 
understand the presence of sin remains, right? Yes, we are forgiven and saved, and we're, we, you know, it's true of us in Christ that salvation is not by our good works and all that. But, but as we talk about sin thereafter, we can speak of it in terms of just like, well, sin's just hanging around, like it's okay, like it's just, you know, it's just what I do, or, you know, as almost we can't help it. Friend, God has set you free from the power of sin, and there is this effort that we have as a Christ follower to put ourselves in that place of surrendering to the work of the Spirit. Godliness grows, but there's strenuous intentionality as part of that. Not to say godliness is achieved by our human effort alone, but it is true that we have a choice in what we devote ourselves to, what we set our minds upon, how our time is spent. Our physical and mental capacities are not neutral, In pursuit of godliness. Instead, we surrender our capacities to the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way that it is the Holy Spirit who grows us in godliness. We might say it this way We surrender, the Holy Spirit transforms. Right? There's this wonderful cooperation. We, we surrender. We commit ourselves. We have that intentional focus of our hearts to, 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 to follow what honors God and what represents Him well, and the Spirit of God transforms. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit in the Word of God, right? It's, it's the fruit of the Spirit in us, but we participate in that. Our surrender is not passive. On the contrary, it takes great effort. Furthermore, as we said last week, Scripture teaches us we can quench the Holy Spirit within us. We can stifle the Spirit. How, how is that? When we choose, right, when we are not intentional about setting our minds upon the things of God. So our participation is critical. For example, in the battle of sexual morality, you have a choice of what you set before your eyes. May our heart be along with the psalmist in Psalm 101, which says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Right? The commitment there, the, the intentionality. It takes strenuous intentionality in cooperation with the power of the Holy Spirit to battle the addiction to pornography. Same is true in the battle of gluttony, right? I mean, you have a choice of what you set before you. In the battle of gossip, you have a choice of what or who you talk about. That's our intentional effort. The Word of God tells us finally in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's what we're exhorted to. So train yourself. For godliness. Paul continues the analogy here in verse 8. says, for while bodily training is of some value, right? All of us acknowledge there's good that comes out of taking care of ourselves physically. Whether that's what we eat or that's the exercise, those kind of things. Bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What saying? The saying of verse 8. While bodily training is of some value, godliness of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That's a saying that is trustworthy 
and deserving of full acceptance. Godliness in, is a value in every way. Because it's there, not only in this life, but in the life to come. That eternal perspective of the life that we live. Realizing what we do for God is what, is what God will, will commend in, in the time we stand before him. Well done, good and faithful servant, right? We reflect upon that, wanting to hear that be true of us. The reward of heaven, the, the time of serving within the kingdom of God. And all of that blessing that comes, there's a, there's a value of that in what is to come. Verse 10, Paul goes on, for to this end, we toil and strive. There it is again. Words that, that communicate this effort. Toil and strive. I, I, strenuous intentionality on a daily basis, pursuing what represents God. For to this end, godliness, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe, right? Where's our hope set? Is it set in ourselves? Is it set upon the things of this world, right? Michael Joy told us, like, that he encouraged us to think about the foundation. Of, like, what is the foundation? What is, what is your hope set upon? For a follower of Jesus, our hope is set on the living God, the Savior of all people. That's not a universalistic teaching in which God will save everybody. No, it means that salvation is open to anyone who believes, right? Especially, namely, of those who believe, whether Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, as the Scripture describes, like God has, has made that available to whosoever comes and believes in Him will have eternal life. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Command and teach these things. The word command is a strong word. The defense of sound doctrine and refuting false teaching at times requires a bold and authoritative approach. Listen, friends, we have an enemy who is, who is seeking to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. This is not a simple, ho-hum, nonchalant, casual kind of battle. These things that Paul is pressing into are not optional to ministry and to the Christian life. Command these things, he says to Timothy. Teach these things. Continue to instruct. We all need reminders, don't we? I need them. Right? We all need that kind of continual uh, interaction with the Word of God to remember in different seasons of life as you face hard things and, and different things come along in life. It's like how many times I've heard people say, man, I, now that I'm in this season of life, I've never seen that in the Scriptures before. Right? But now God gives this hope to me because of what I see. Teach these things. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth. I believe he's speaking here particularly of age. Timothy was young, considered young in the day, although he was a teacher and leader there in Ephesus in the church. Could be age physically, could be age even spiritually, right? We have things to learn from new believers, their enthusiasm. I don't know how many of you have been saved for a long time, but my heart still gets full of joy and challenged when I see the enthusiasm of a new believer. I loved Kelly's, and I don't know if she's in the room, and I, get, I don't remember her name and, and won't, wouldn't say it anyway, but just off the top of my head, I'm thinking of a conversation I had with Kelly when she came back from the women's retreat. 
couple weeks ago and talking with uh, in the group there, one of the ladies speaking to the newfound faith that she had, and God gripped her heart, and God has gotten a hold of her heart, and, and speaking in terms of how that relationship with Jesus has now changed everything about her life. She's thinking differently in every area of life because of that newfound relationship with Jesus, and my heart got crazy. I'm like, all right, Lord, <laughs> what areas have I let? slide where am i not thinking well of my relationship with jesus right the encouragement of a new believer right so don't let people look down upon you for your age young people teenagers like live for christ right and, and be an encouragement Paul exhorts Timothy, don't let them look down but set believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity these attitudes and beliefs, they represent God well. Set that example. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself. There's that word again as we looked at it last week. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands upon you. Devote yourself. Again, a term of intentionality. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Now, for them, that had a bit different place than it does for us. Today, we have personal copies of the Word of God, probably more than one. We have our devices where we can access it anytime, anywhere, many translations, right? For them, they didn't have individual personal copies. The reading, public reading of the Scripture was the way that they learned and, was, and were reminded of the Scriptures. And so, had a bit different place in the context of their gathering, but it's still important for us to realize what, what gathers us together today is the center of the teaching of the Word of God. Whether it's in singing, whether it's in the teaching of the Word, whether it's in our fellowship, devote ourselves to that public reading to the exhortation, the encouragement and comfort, to the instruction that comes. And do not neglect the gift you have. There's times we won't go into today, which Paul had reiterated with Timothy about this giftedness and laying on the hands of the elders, acknowledgement of that giftedness, and Timothy continues to function in the midst of that. I just simply would say to you, have you ever identified the spiritual gift that God has given to you? Scripture is clear that we each have been given a spiritual gift to build up the body of Christ. And one of the pursuits of godliness is to live in light of that gift and to realize, man, if this is my giftedness, God, I want to use what you have gifted to me to build up others in the body of Christ. That's an important aspect to learn of our faith. And uh, if you would be so inclined, immediately after this service, third service is when we kick off our journey at Crossroads class, and part of that class is, is walking through and uh, consideration of those spiritual gifts that God has given to you. So you can certainly participate in that if you would choose. Verse 15 and 16, we finish out. I'm not going to spend much time on these. Listen to these imperatives or these commands that Paul gives to them. It just kind of continues the thought of intentionality. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. I love that imagery. Thinking of a, like a sponge that's dipped into a bucket of water. You, just, immer- you just, so- just soak your life in these things so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Godliness grows by strenuous intentionality 
and I will add here, and persistence. And persistence. Perseverance is a key theme in the scriptures. So our two thoughts today, godliness begins with our knowledge of and nourishment from the word of God. And godliness grows by strenuous intentionality and we could say joyful persistence, right? I don't want this to feel like a heavy weight for you today. It might feel like that as I've communicated it. I'm trying to simply communicate to you the seriousness of the matter. And in one way, it is a weight. In one way, it is a sense of like every day, like there should be this sense of burden in our hearts to, to pursue that which is in alignment with godliness. I want to be like God. I want to represent him well in a lost world. But it is a joy. There is no greater joy than to pursue godliness. I'll say this to end and we'll finish. What it all boils down to is this. There is nothing else in life we ought to be more committed to than the pursuit of godliness in all things. Nothing else in life we ought to be more committed to than the pursuit of godliness in all things. That's the heart of a Christ follower. That's the heart of what Paul expresses to Timothy by way of saying, train yourself for godliness. Train your life up for his glory. Amen? And may the Spirit give to us strength in doing so. I want to invite you to stand with me. We're not going to end with a song today. We're going to end with the public reading of Scripture. We're going to end with reading a particular portion of Scripture, just two verses that are really a heart of prayer. And I want it to be our corporate prayer together as we finish our time today. And when we're done, you're dismissed, and may you go in God's grace and peace. But let's read from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21 together in responsiveness and in prayer of the truth that we have heard today. Let's begin. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Christ's blessings upon you as you go.